This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Welcome to the show. It is a Wednesday edition of the program. You're most of the way through the weekend, which means not only do you have been football this weekend, but there's hockey this weekend. The Colorado Avalanche get their rookie camp underway tomorrow at Family Sports in Centennial, and then they will immediately leave for Las Vegas, where they will play around the Las Vegas area in the rookie tournament. Joining us now to set the scene is from Altitude TV, our friend Katie Goss, Katie underscore Goss on Twitter there. And and Katie, one, nice to talk to you. Hopefully the summer has treated you well. Uh, two, are you ready to get back out there and, and watch a, a team take another run at the Stanley Cup? Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me. It feels like only yesterday we were chatting about last season. So I think that's a good thing. Summer went fast. I feel rested. I'm sure the team feels rested. And, yeah, safe to say I am very, very excited um, eager to get this season going, and every day that we get more news just makes it more and more uh, enticing to just get these guys back on the ice. Last year, in a much shorter off season, the narrative centered on the subtractions, the people the Avalanche had lost. And with the exception of the goaltending situation, those losses did sting. Cadre's uh, team didn't make the playoffs, and Cadre statistically did not have a significantly better season than his quote unquote replacement JT Comfer had. There's no doubt they missed Cadre, and they missed Burakovsky. Burakovsky uh, having a terrific year uh, until he got hurt, but it still goes down as uh, uh, a loss that the Avalanche felt certainly this year. During a longer offseason, it's been more about additions. Of the additions they've made, which one intrigues you the most? Oh, that's such a tough question. You've got Druan, you've got Tatar, you've got Colton, you've got Johansson, you've got Miles Wood. Right. You've got a lot. I'm very excited about all of them. I would say maybe the feeling I got from the Tatar signing was the most exciting because I was like, yes, that feels like it, right? Like we, we had some great pieces, but maybe I was still a little concerned about who's going to fill those, those final two spots. I mean, that's, that's, uh, you know, that's putting a full line almost in the mix, getting Tatar and getting that balance and that depth and having someone who's an awesome arguably one of the best middle six guys there is who's still producing and playing responsibly and putting up ridiculously good plus ratings at his age almost felt like I'm not comparing him to Kadri, but it kind of felt like we were getting a little bit of a guy like that. Someone with experience, someone with veteran presence. But for me, it just felt like things were more complete after that signing. Like this team suddenly felt like it went from being I was excited about it. I knew they had a ton of potential to, okay, now we have depth. Now I feel almost a little bit more relaxed uh, about our our forward situation because we all know the defense is phenomenal. It's still the best in the NHL, in my opinion. The goaltending proved itself last year. No changes there. So, of course, all eyes were on the forwards. And what did we notice a lot down the stretch last year? Holy smokes, were we lacking depth. And I know injuries were part of that, but – 
even when we had guys back in, that the bottom six weren't producing the way we needed them to. So seeing these new guys come in and wondering, you know, where they're going to slot in, but feeling like no matter where they go, we have so many options all the way down. It feels really good to only be worrying about maybe one spot now on that fourth line. And that's a great situation and position to be in heading into camp. Now, of course, there are guys slotted places that still have to prove themselves. You know, Druin coming in. Yes. Very interested to see what he does, especially with his reunion with McKinnon. Johansson, I think, is going to be a wonderful 2C, but... But he had a bad year. He had a bad year last year. A lot of things, right, and injuries. So a lot of things are still remaining to be proven. On paper, right now, everyone does all the things we hope and think they can do. We're in a great spot. So, of course, they still have to put the proof in the pudding, but really, really liking the way this is looking on paper. I know more about Tatar than I know about this man, but the move that intrigued me the most involves Miles Wood, not because he's an especially disciplined player, because he's not, but Kadri was totally undisciplined, and in spite of one notable exception, generally was a different guy here in Denver during his time here than he had been in Toronto. And that's why Miles Wood intrigues me. One, he can fly, and two, he's edgy. They just have to take the stupid penalties out of his game. But he's 28 years old, and he skates like the wind, and he doesn't mind playing a physical game. That was the other thing I had the feeling that the Avalanche lacked at the end of last year. In large part due to injury, they were easier to push around. A lot easier to push around than they had been the year before. I completely agree with you. I think Miles Wood brings an element that that they're missing, and he kind of has that similarity to being like a power forward, but also brings the the tenacity and and the really impressive size that you're going to love to see in front of the net. Like you mentioned, his skating, like his north south game, he's going to drive the play, he's going to keep the pace. That's exactly what you're going to want from a third line guy. I also love the idea as of right now of him being on the same line as Ross Colton because he's a similar guy. He, he's going to bring energy. He's got the, the grit in his game. He is not afraid to drop the gloves. We saw him do it with Logan O'Connor. So I am loving the idea that we are getting a little bit more of a grit in our lineup because I absolutely thought towards the end of last year and in the playoffs that was a big identity crisis that we were having was not knowing, you know, how to stand up for ourselves without just Miko getting angry and taking a bad penalty, right? Like we don't need Miko to be the guy that is responsible for standing up for this team. We need him to do what he did last year, putting up all those points. So getting more of a culture in those bottom depth players around being physical, but like you said, the right way, the smart way, I think Wood, I think Colton are going to be options to that playing those games that we see like Cogliano and O'Connor willing to to bring energy to to put in hardship but also producing I mean Miles Wood had some really good numbers over his career considering some of the positions that he's been in what was it last season 
27 points. I mean, if he's coming in, he's putting up over 10 goals. Like that's, that's kind of awesome to see that this isn't just a guy who's, you know, going to be a big body. He's actually going to get pucks in the net too. You have to like that. And especially if he's on the line with a guy like Tataro at 20 goals himself. And I think that's the point you brought up is it did feel like last season prior to last season. And I think some of it was the fact that they did not make the move with Gabe Landeskog to put him on the LTIR. They did this year and then they could spend that in the middle, in the middle six, the Avs just sort of grabbed what they could and did it by piecemeal. And then when it came to the playoff series against the Kraken, when it came to trying to find secondary scoring, it wasn't really there. Now it feels like these lines are assembled. It feels like there was more of a plan and a strategy, knowing that Landis Gog was going to be out, knowing that that gave them money to play with, that they actually worked on building this middle six out with intent. And I think at least when you look at it on paper, the idea of having secondary scoring should be there. The physicality, as you mentioned, should be there. It feels less cobbled together in a response to Landis Gog's injury. And now the understanding with the clarity that he'll be out for the year made the Avs an opportunity, gave them an, to, to reinvent a little bit on the fly. Presumably, if they have this group all year, by the time they get to the playoffs again, you will know where that scoring comes from as opposed to hope. I completely agree. I, I kind of keep thinking that maybe the reason I'm the most excited about this camp in particular is also the idea of waiting to see what Coach Bednar is going to do with these. We all like to, you know, speculate and put our ideas together, but he's such a phenomenal coach. I can't wait to see the way that not just he puts the lines together, but the special teams units that we start to see. I mean, these are going to be very different from the last few years, but I, I feel like in the best way possible. If I'm if I'm Bednar, I feel like he's got to be looking at this roster, licking his chops a little bit. Like I can't wait to get started. I can't wait to bring the best out of some of these players, especially guys who maybe have underperformed or received not as much opportunity in the last few seasons. So that's going to be a really unique opportunity for Coach Bednar to to put his stamp on these players and 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 kind of mold this new forward lineup. And I, I can't wait to see it until that that Tatar signing yesterday, it still felt like the Avalanche were going to be waiting for a rookie or two to bubble up and take one of those spots. Now, it doesn't feel like there's as much pressure or necessity to do that. But with the rookie camp starting tomorrow, the tournament, of course, will uh, go in the immediate days after that. What rookies are the Avs hoping to, or expecting, I suppose, to take the next step and give them another opportunity when the eventual injury hits? Or let's say, you know, knock on wood, that the uh, comeback attempt by Duran does not work as well as they expected. Who's the next up? Who do the Avs want to see make that leap? Well, there's two sides to it. It's, it's interesting because you've got the obvious rookies, and I would say Oscar Olauson is one who has been continually talked about, that we've seen little glimpses of him. Ben Myers is obviously no longer a rookie, but he's still very much a name that we're seeing in the mix as a possibility in that fourth line, whether he goes to the center and Cogliano moves over. There's also some interesting uh, PTOs, guys on the professional tryouts for this. Uh, Yolki Ranta coming over is an interesting one. I love, great I, I love him. Yeah. And you, you're, you're in a story, and I'm sure you remember this. I can still see it. His hat trick in Game 7 in 2020, which in my yeah. opinion took a Stanley Cup away from the Colorado Avalanche. It was unbelievable. I had a friend who was working for the Texas Stars at the time, and she had had him all season long. And I remember texting her being like, who is this guy? And she's like, I mean, they they knew he had potential. However, it doesn't feel like he's necessarily risen to those levels since that incredible moment. 
So another opportunity here, maybe we can revive some of that. Joe Bucky by no means was not like a major part of what happened there. It was an incredible game. I remember people on Twitter just being like baffled at not knowing who this, this kid was. And, and he was absolutely incredible to watch. So if we could see some of that at camp, that would be a really exciting potential PTO turned into an opportunity on this bottom six. I guess last one for you here, the understanding that uh, Gabriel Landeskog will miss the entire season. There's sort of a, a small amount of hope that maybe when the playoffs roll around that they'll readdress the issue. But the Avalanche have to focus on the guys that are in the room as this team uh, makes itself into a squad in this training camp and in this preseason, uh, which is thankfully a brief one, uh, unlike what we've seen in the NFL. But soon enough, this, this season is going to start. The anticipation for the Avalanche, the expectation for the Avalanche with all of these new faces, how quickly do you think they'll integrate and start looking like the team that we expect them to see by midseason? You know, that's the one interesting part because last year coming into the season, it was such a relatively low amount of turnover that I felt like from day one at camp, we really saw this team just like hit the gas pedal and go full force and look pretty comfortable together. That being said, I think that because these additions are all so strategic, like we've talked about, like it really feels like they have pieced this together with a lot of thought and a lot of intent. And these guys are pros. Obviously they're rested. That's going to help them hit, hit this camp with a bit of more stride than maybe we saw last year. They pushed it, but they were tired. I mean, that, that wasn't exactly an off season to be completely honest. I feel that this team is really going to find chemistry quickly what I also like, I've been going through my notes these last few days, and I've been looking at this trend of you know, a lot of these guys are right in that sweet spot of their careers. We've got a lot of these 1995 birth years, 96 birth years, even a little bit of these older guys, but they're all, they're all experienced now, and that is going to pay off in a big way. Obviously, you're not trying to have the oldest team in the NHL. That being said, experience is going to make a big difference. I think a lot of these guys are going to mesh quickly because they've done this before. They've been on different teams, and, and here they are. They're ready to work. And there's a lot of guys in this lineup that, as we've mentioned a few times now in this chat, are looking to kind of prove themselves and kind of reinvent themselves. And so I think, I mean, for Druin and Johansson, guys that are really excited about what this opportunity means, I think you're going to see them flying right out of the gate because they have a lot to prove. And they have, you know, a lot of expectations. I think it's going to be awesome to see. But I really like the identity that I feel this this group's going to have. I think there's going to be a good culture here with just the experience, the veteran status. There's going to be a lot of good character in this room. To reinforce your point, the Avs in their projected lineup have 11 players, either 27, 28, or 29, mm-hmm. along with Makar and Byram, who are under 25, and play like guys who are in their primes. And the good news with those two is that they can get a lot better. Byram has to be a lot more available, and uh, McCarr needs fewer injuries uh, this year uh, than he had last year. But that gives you 13 players who should be in their prime slash at the top of their game. And with veterans on one-year deals incentivized to have a great year. Absolutely. So there is a yeah. lot to like. Uh, she is Katie Goss. Make sure you follow her on Twitter at Katie underscore Goss. That's G-A-U-S on Twitter. The Avs rookies get to camp tomorrow. They will go in immediately into a tournament out in the Vegas area that will finish up on Monday. And a week from tomorrow, the full squad gets going at training camp. And that means a week 
from Sunday. First preseason game of the year. The Wild will come to town to take on the Avs at Ball Arena. It comes on us that fast. So, Katie, I really appreciate the time, and we're looking forward to cutting this up with you as this season gets moving, well, sooner than a lot of people might think. Oh, I can't wait, guys. Thanks so much for chatting with me today. Can't wait to see you all at the rink very soon. Yes, soon enough. Thank you so much, Katie. Appreciate it. Uh, it, it is it is going to be, uh, I mean, that's how quick it comes, folks. The first preseason game is a week from Sunday. And I, I know that we come away from last season remembering the last thing we saw. Sure. And that was getting beaten by a second-year team in Seattle, Not which had happened feeling. to the Az before and, and, and against the Minnesota Wild more than 20 years ago. And it wasn't a great way to finish the season. However... Keep in mind that in spite of all the injuries, between mid-January and the end of the regular season, the Colorado Avalanche were the best team in the National Hockey League. And that was with Landis Cog being out and not Shit. being able to replace his and cost McCarr of salary And missing cap. huge chunks of time. Yeah, there's a lot and to McKinnon like. And McKinnon missing time. I, I'm just saying, they obviously were worn down by the playoffs, and they had to mm-hmm. go like that to win the division. There's a reason the winning back-to-back or the three straight, like the, the Lightning were going for it. There's a reason it's hard to do. And that was a hell of an accomplishment. To get to three in a row, to win two and get to a third. I mean, it's remarkable. And then, I mean, not win three in a row, but get to three. Even get that close. NHL final series in succession. Yes, amazing. So, you Amazing. know, it may very well be that that was an unfortunate uh, and loss to take, but it may actually set the abs up for better success. Longer offseason. This year. Longer offseason, uh, better usage of the salary cap, uh, an understanding of what you need to augment the stars that you know you have a lot to be excited about for the Colorado Avalanche. For the Denver Broncos, on the pass rush, perhaps <laughs> less. I have some pro football focus numbers that are uh, sobering. Let's put it that way. We'll talk about it next on My Life Sports. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Hey, why bet with the big boys this football season? Instead, try your hand with the local book. That's Superbook Sports. This fall, Superbook is the book next door. Just a dedicated team of the best odds makers in Las Vegas, making sure you get the best prices and parlays anywhere. And now, Superbook will give you a bonus of up to $250 when you sign up and wager on the same day and use the promo code Mile High. So bet with the best. Use promo code MILEHIGH this football season with Superbook Sports. Visit Superbook.com for terms and conditions. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And I start with that, Sandy, because nobody (laughs) in the AFC West gambled on blitzes more than Denver Broncos. In fact, only two teams in the entire NFL did, the Vikings and the Buccaneers. Blitzed at a higher percentage than the Broncos 41% of the time. However, the league's median approach rate when it came to pressure was 39% of the time. So you'll notice the rough correlation, right? The the average team blitzed 30% of the time. That's kind of the median line. The average pressure rate, about 39% of the time. Right. Well, the Broncos blitzed significantly higher, 41%, and I know the math is weird, and check you know, double-check me on this, but 41% is actually 25% higher than that median. 
of 30, right? So that's a significant increase in blitz rate. And nobody had worse amounts of pressure than the Broncos 13% of the time. In fact, nobody else in the entire NFL had fewer than 20. Even the Giants in their 0-40 to loss pressured Dak Prescott 20% of the time. Oh, sure, sure. And... Uh, you know, maybe the Broncos are getting the least bang for the buck of anybody. And maybe, this was week one. I get it. But it's against the Raiders and, and Jimmy Garoppolo. You know, Mike McCarthy, once the score reached a certain point, and obviously the Giants were incapable of getting back into the game, he took the air out of the ball. And, you know, I did notice Kellen Moore in the Charger Miami game. And listen, I. Part of me understood because, to me, that was a game going back and forth, seesaw uh, type of affair. And the feeling she had to keep attacking, but they were running the ball pretty well. And they didn't take the air out of the ball when they got the lead. Uh, they kept throwing. They kept throwing and attacking. And, they, and it wasn't necessarily wrong, but it was interesting to see. I, I think Mike McCarthy knows he has a defense, and maybe Kellen Moore, as offensive coordinator, even with a defensive-minded head coach as his boss, knows that the Chargers don't have a defense. So he had to keep throwing. I get that. But to me, when, according to Pro Football Focus, you had six total pressures in the game. Yikes. In the game. Holy cow. And two came from Singleton on blitzes. Okay? And, again, Without Baron Browning, and yes, without Draymond Jones. Gregory and Allen were 0 for 47 on pressures. Oh, my goodness. 0 for 47. Now, as we indicated uh, earlier in the week, Allen did not have a bad game. Allen actually had a pretty good game. I thought so. Certainly by Bronco standards, (laughs) it was a pretty good game for Zach Allen. But Gregory was invisible. Just completely invisible and left after the game to to start babbling about how he didn't get one-on-one rush opportunities because Garoppolo was getting rid of the ball so quickly and all this nonsense. Uh, Baron Browning can't play. Right. Now, let me talk about Jerry Judy, who's on the active roster. And, you know, Baron Browning's on the pup list. He ought to miss the game this coming week and come back in Miami, but the Broncos are desperate, so uh, they're likely to play him on Sunday, as you uh, pointed out. But Baron Browning can't play for four weeks. Right. At all. He's Period. on pop. Yep. And he can't play for four weeks. Correct. I think on paper, anyway, after they lost Draymond Jones, he might have been the best remaining pass rusher. Well, he, he had the most sacks of anyone remaining. Well, that's okay. <laughs> I that's, mean, that's my argument. About and, that. And so for the next three weeks, you're not going to have him. At least the next three weeks, you're not going to have him. And you're not going to have Draymond Jones at all. So you're going to have to find somebody to step up. And I don't think it'll be Frank Clark. And I don't even think it necessarily will be Randy Gregory who is not old except when you consider all the time he's missed and all the injuries and so on, where for 
whatever his age is, he may be the equivalent of a player three to five years older than that. And I don't know how much he has left, and I don't know how much more Frank Clark in his 30s has left. And I'm just wondering where it's going to come from. And, you know, I like Jonathan Cooper, but as your primary pass rusher, um, Zach Allen's got to rush the passer. To, I know you're asking him to do a lot, but he's got to rush the passer. He's got to be your best. He's, he's got to be able to find some pressures. There, there's no two ways about it. It's got to happen. And for, for this team, you know, there were only three quarterback hits the entire time. And that's simply Isn't not that enough. remarkable? Three quarterback hits. Three quarterback hits. There were four teams out of 32 in week one that had no sacks. The Broncos were one of the four. That means there were 28 teams that had at least a sack. And the Broncos didn't have any against a line and a team not known to have protected its passer all that well, at least in recent years. And this nonsense is that we pointed out earlier that, well, the Raiders were just getting rid of the ball quickly and taking the short gains. It's not true. From snap to throw, 2.85 seconds for both the Broncos and the Raiders on Sunday. Here's the other part of it. What did Vance Joseph say about Drew Sanders in training camp? That as a linebacker, he makes at least one play in every practice that no other linebacker can Mm -hmm. Presumably having to do with his speed, right? He never rushed the quarterback once. He didn't get on the field. Right. Defensively, he played some special teams. Zero snaps. On defense. On defense. Mm -hmm. And what was I hearing also? This this is one of the reasons I pay no attention to preseason football. It's, I think at this point, more due to the balderdash that coaches like Sean Payton and Vance Joseph put out on a daily basis. It's just nonsense. Somebody asked what what happened to the special packages for Drew Sanders that Vance Joseph was talking about in the preseason. And, it, and they were like, it, it, Sean Payton answered, well, no, it's, it's not that we don't trust him. Played zero snaps. <laughs> I played zero snaps. You played zero snaps. There, there aren't guys that are much better, apparently, because Drew nobody Sanders, was getting pressure. So. Zero snaps. Nick Benito, who I acknowledge, did not do much. When Nick he Benito was had there. one of the three hurries. Okay. He at least had okay. one of those. And and out of the three guys that, that got any, he had by far the, the, the fewest he, attempts. He played 25% of the snaps. Right. On defense. Okay. Where, where was he? The so maybe, maybe he needs training. to play more. Other than Zach Allen, the most impressive Bronco. I kept hearing it on either side of the ball throughout training camp. Certainly day like after day after day was the Nick next Benito. most explosive. Boy, what a jump. What a jump Benito he made from and the Sanders both stood out. All right. And it, it, this was Peyton's one. Well, he played in the kicking game. Talking about Drew Sanders. Yeah, well, he played in the kicking game. But Jimmy game. Garoppolo didn't. Devontae Adams didn't. That's the problem. You know what the Broncos <laughs> did the other day and what their commentary suggested since the end of the game? That they think that the game comes out of the stats rather than the stats coming out of the game. 
the game comes out of the stats in the view of the Broncos because, oh, we held Josh Jacobs to 48 yards rushing on 19 carries. Oh, we held Devontae Adams to 66 yards on six pass receptions. Fellas, the game doesn't come out of the stats. The stats come out of the game. And if you want to be realistic about it, if Jimmy Garoppolo hadn't missed Devontae Adams for a sure touchdown pass, he'd have had his 100 yards receiving. He was he had beaten Patrick Sertan badly, and Garoppolo missed him. And they talked about it after the game. Garoppolo said he had went over to the sidelines immediately after that series and apologized to Adams for missing him. He 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 knew after the play was over that he had missed a wide open receiver for a touchdown. You, you, the idea of the stats is kind of funny. We were I, I was sitting here at the studios before the show, and uh, Danny Bailey, our producer, and I are talking, and Anilo Piero, who you here was over at as well. And Anilo was looking at a couple of things he was putting together, and he brought up a good point. He's like, how did Kirk Cousins throw for 344 yards and Justin Jefferson catch 150 yards and the Vikings only scored 17? Right. Because that can happen. That happens. Passers throw for over 300 yards. And the reason and is their team they had turnovers. All and the they couldn't time. run because the they have 41 rushing yards. Right. Couldn't even break right. three yards a carry. Well, you, it, when I say uh, the stats come out of the game, it, it, it's not. It, it's not even that. Is it's certain select stats right. that coaches point to that come out of the game. And they don't. Well, what about turnovers? Where coaches talk all the time in abstract ways about uh, the, the biggest stat is the turnover ratio, uh, takeaway giveaway. That's. But when they're analyzing a game, like, well, our guy threw for three hundred forty yards, and our number one receiver is the best receiver in the league. No question about it. Justin Jefferson he had one hundred fifty yards. Yeah, but you scored 17 points against the Tampa Bay Bucks, who I understand still have some remnants from their Super Bowl defense, which is exceptional. But, you know, come on now. They were also led by three years later. Baker Mayfield offensively. Baker Mayfield. Who threw for fewer than 200 yards. Right. Right. And, you know, (laughs) there were 16 games played in week one. In 12 of those games, the quarterback with a better passer rating was on the winning side. So, you know, but it, it's and not Minnesota's the quarterback wasn't with one the of most them. yards. Right. Minnesota wasn't one of them. Cousins was slightly better. But Mayfield, despite yeah, I, his, I his numbers being comparatively lower, was still 94.4. And that's a little bit better than average. And Cousins that, was 102.8. It wasn't, I understand. Yeah. It wasn't a gargantuan difference. And I, I one of those, you know what one of those games was? One of the four? Was the game here? Russell Wilson's passer rating mm-hmm. was one hundred eight, and Jimmy Garoppolo's was one hundred seven point nine. Yep. And you can't tell me in the fourth quarter that Garoppolo, statistically, and as far as the eye test is concerned, wasn't a better quarterback. Well, Garoppolo did me. have a better QBR, eighty three point four to seventy four point seven. Yeah. Well, it, but, but that, it, even that. They're, they're two very good figures. The quarterbacks which, didn't weren't the difference you makers look at in this 17 game. Seventeen to sixteen, right? No, no, they weren't. But the quarterbacks were good. They were fine. Other than the dumb interception Garoppolo threw, they were basically mistake free. Wilson. Now Wilson got away with a fumble uh, because there was a foul on the Raiders on right. the same play, so he got away with that one. 
and Garoppolo, by their winning the game, got away with the pick, which might have lost the game had the Raiders not Against won it. Against a better football play, team, it might have been. That would have been the play that lost the game, and you're exactly right against a better team. It would have been different, uh, most likely. But, it, you know, people see 17-16 to 16 and they think, wow, great defense. Well, the quarterbacks combined had yeah. a rating of 108. <laughs> but threw for a total of 377 well, well, yards no. together. And, and they were they were only 521 yards between the two right, teams in the, the game at total offense. So it wasn't like they were moving the ball. And there were only 13 possessions, and one at the end was a Raider possession that was, yeah. and mul- multiple, was an incomplete. Multiple drives were extended by penalties for both teams. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a, a low-scoring game does not necessarily mean it was a good defensive game. Sometimes it no, just means it was exactly. a poorly played offensive that's, game that someone yeah, ended up in a slugfest and, and look, somebody somebody's got to win. Somebody I mean, that's how it boils down. So what can the Broncos do better realistically? We'll talk about that and take a look at one of your texts next on My Life Sports. Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. For the Never Broncos, they have a game that is as close to must-win as you can have in week two if you really want to be taken seriously as a playoff team, which, by the way, Sean Payton said he'd be upset with. I used even a different term. If they were not a playoff team, Russell Wilson was pretty effective for the most part. Uh, the, the short center part of the field, uh, his biggest weakness, as it usually is, but he was pretty consistent across the, the uh, concept plays, whether you're looking at play action or not, with screens, no screens, pretty consistent across the board. The concern is when Wilson was blitzed. And when he was blitzed, And this is, again, where you start looking at the statistics and you have to figure out how much you can split it. Wilson was not good when he was blitzed. And let's look at pro football focus, for example. Uh, When not blitzed, an 81.1 out of 100. That's actually quite good. When blitzed, 28.2. Now, when the pocket was clean, he was a 72.4. When under pressure, 50.8. That's not actually all that bad for under pressure. No, it's not. But when blitzed, that's a big drop-off. The problem is when you look at it and say, wow, Russell Wilson's terrible when he's blitzed. Well, that's not counting the, the quality of the blitz, is it? As Sandy broke down earlier, even though the time to throw for the Broncos and the Raiders was very comparable. It was identical. I don't like Russell Wilson identical. ended up having to look desperate because he was getting the ball away from two and three guys on him. Whereas Jimmy Garoppolo was not. So how much of that, when you put expectations on Wilson, are you expecting him to be able to perform? And that's where I think it's, it's challenging. To, to me, this team just needs more playmakers. On offense, I think they'll bring Jerry Judy back. Whether that's the right idea or not, we'll see. They have to try more with Marvin Mims. They have to try more with Julio McLaughlin. His final uh, question of the press conference today, Sean Payton did say he was going to look for more touches for McLaughlin. You know, he was in the game the other day, um, 8% of the snaps. That's a handful of plays. Uh, 
and they didn't go very well because there wasn't one time he touched the ball where he had any blocking. Nope. And I did go back and look. He had no blocking. Whether he was carrying the ball or catching the ball, he had no blocking. Um, Mims is out there for, what, 27% of the snaps. Um, Sean Payton's justification for that, very much like Drew Sanders, I'm sure. Well, he played on special teams. Played in the kicking game. Uh, okay, that's wonderful. Um, the special teams weren't especially good the well, other they, day, and a lot of that had to do with the kicking yeah. itself in the kicking missed game. Missed an extra point. They, they, otherwise they missed an extra point, missed a field goal. Tied. And, so, yeah. you know, you, the kicker lost the game uh, in, in, right. in that sense. As he admitted afterwards, he said, listen, uh, there are four points that I was responsible for now, that we didn't get. 55, I think you know that's a coin toss. He pushed it a little uh, bit. It shouldn't be at altitude, though. It, I'm, I'm sorry, it shouldn't be. He had plenty of leg anyway. Yeah, plenty uh, of he leg, had plenty for sure. plenty of leg, and he pushed it. And but, he pushed the I extra point. I can, extra I can live with a 50-plus yard field goal, but well, extra points, you got to hit. Not, not here. you, you got to make those. That's fair. That's you got to make those. And when McManus couldn't make them on a consistent basis, they got rid of them. Fair point. Um Another one of the Can't argue ridiculously that. stupid personnel decisions made by the Denver Broncos, and there have been a slew of them made by a variety of people, several people, in fact, who have been in charge over the past six years, seven years straight out of the playoffs and well on their way to eight straight out of the playoffs. It, <laughs> Sean Payton is getting more criticism I don't think, and you don't think he particularly deserves for the onside kick at the beginning of the game no. than he is for anything else. I would look at at least three aspects of that game, including deployment of certain personnel that were much more aligned with the Broncos losing the football game than the decision to go with an onside kick, which I, I didn't think was a look at me thing and no, any so. kind of fixation on the most famous coaching call that Sean Payton ever made, which was an onside kick at the start of the second half uh, in Super Bowl 44, I think it was, against Peyton Manning's Indianapolis Colts that turned the game. I didn't think it was anything of that. I think he and Mike Westhoff, Dr. Rick Perea, uh, on with us Monday, said, I know him very well. He's a terrific coach. One of the best special teams coaches in the business. And, again, this is something they thought about not just last week but for months, that they saw a flaw in the kickoff configuration of the Raiders and thought uh, kickoff return. Cover, uh, uh, of the Raiders, not coverage. And they saw a flaw, and the term now that gets used is we, we found a way to have leverage, and they did recover the onside kick, and it was too bad that Smith touched it before it had traveled 10 yards. Uh, they might or might not have recovered the onside kick anyway. But it, it, there were so many other things that went wrong, and you know, I, Sean Payton spent a year out of football, and 
last year, the deep passing game completely disappeared. And, and, and the way you throw the ball now has changed. And I'm thinking even for somebody as meticulous as Sean Payton, maybe out of the game for a year, you know, maybe you're a little rusty. And he's honest enough to say, basically today, admit that he should have played McLaughlin more. Right? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. what you take out of that statement. Yes. He yeah. should have played McLaughlin more than he did. We've talked about this with respect to several sports. We talked about it with the Nuggets this year when I think there was a Sunday afternoon game against the Brooklyn Nets in which Michael Malone just forgot about Michael Porter Jr. and didn't play him in the fourth quarter. And I guess he put him in with or, uh, seconds. Or Aaron, Aaron Gordon, right? Well, Aaron Gordon too, but right. Michael Porter, remember? Oh, yes, I know what you're talking about. Michael right. Porter's maturation yep. that they went to him you're after correct. the game and he didn't do what he might have done a year earlier or he didn't play a year earlier but two years earlier anyway or even earlier last season it, he didn't say anything critical about Michael Malone Michael Malone forgot about him anyway, it wasn't a conscious decision to scapegoat Michael Porter and he's responsible for our losing our lead in the third quarter and didn't play lousy second half and I was on it and I just forgot about him I think the Broncos forgot about Jaleel McLaughlin the other day because the other two running backs, neither one of them played close to 50% of the snaps. So they, they, no. there were opportunities to play McLaughlin more. And, and Javante averaged four him. yards a carry and P Ryan 5.1. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't disastrous. Uh, it was much better yardage than the Raiders were able to get out of their well, running game. Well, on a per-carry basis. On a per-carry basis. Uh, there was a lot of variability from carry to carry. Uh, especially with especially P. Ryan. Especially with P. Ryan. Yeah. yeah. And, and and we both like P. Ryan, but I still do. in spite but of there's the there's a plaudits, reason he's never been the, the In spite lead back. of the plaudits from uh, some people that I ordinarily have ultimate trust in their judgment, but it, they were uh, raving about what a great game he played. I thought half the plays he took off. He, he didn't look like he, he was He didn't look at least out. entirely focused. No. Yeah. And there was one that. run in particular that James Lofton, who is not exactly <laughs> a guy who tends to be critical right. very often of players, since he was a great former player, he just blistered P. Ryan. Yeah, 30 he short. He said, in fact, quote-unquote, Sean Payton, when he looks at the tape, will not be happy with that run. He will not be There's happy. With too much that dancing run. around the line of scrimmage instead of just going after the. Here's a guy. How much does he weigh? 235? He's, he's big. He's a good size back. So he's dancing at he's, the line he's, of scrimmage. He's not, I got he's a not feeling the, uh, about half those carries he guy. wasn't putting out. I mean, he's, you know, 5'10, 235 pounds. He's not, uh, he's not there to dance. <laughs> Put your head down and. And, and go at Do it. Do what uh, Javante Williams does. Yep. Even coming off uh, an injury to three major knee ligaments. And, and we did see Piran on another couple of plays actually break tackles. And, and, he uh, did. He, so, he, so, I mean, he's capable he of it. He ran like a horse. Four it, of the eight carries. The other four were kind of Focusing so-so. on it. So the, the Broncos have a lot of work to do. Of course, we'll talk about it more as the uh, week goes along. As we pointed out, the uh, Avalanche rookie camp starts tomorrow. The full training camp a week from tomorrow. Thanks to Katie Goss for joining us from Altitude TV. Give her a follow at Katie underscore Goss. That's G-A-U-S for the latest. Of course, she's going to be on top of it from the jump tomorrow morning down at Family Sports. 
Thanks to Danny Bailey, of course, for making everything work. He makes it all sound good and look good. Because if you're over on MyLifeSports.com or on the My Life Sports app, uh, you can watch it as well. So make sure you give that a, a try when you're able. Thanks to all of you for listening and however you have. And we'll be back at it tomorrow with more. A big week in Colorado sports, uh, not including Colorado Avalanche, who, like we mentioned, they're going to return. So things are going to get fun, really fun, really quickly. That is unless the, well, unless you're a supporter of the Colorado State Rams or the Denver Broncos and they don't get a win over Washington. We'll talk more about that for sure tomorrow. For Danny Bailey, for Sandy Clough, I'm Sean Drotar. Thanks for listening. We'll be back, but instead, keep it right here. Don't go anywhere. Keep it on my life sports.